Now we have lecture one, our prefatory lecture on Dante's Purgatorio. This is the 2019 version of this. And so let's see if we can get started and get moving to where we have to go. All right. Four big things we are going to talk about during the course of this lecture today. We will examine the differences between purgatory and hell as otherworldly spheres, that means afterlife sorts of places. Second, we will examine unique aspects of purgatory itself. We will also examine Dante's unique responsibility for purgatory's details. It is a much less demarcated space. He essentially gets to do the imaginative work of creating purgatory, because even though it was a concept within the medieval Catholic cons or consciousness, it was not a very well-defined concept. And so he will be the one that brings definition, demarcation. He will make the lines that form the shape. In any case, heaven and hell were already demarcated. As I said, that means defined. That means uh, uh, there, were, there were ideas about them that were in the consciousness that had already been developed by other thinkers. But again, Dante will have more creative license here. So in a way, this is the most unique of all of his canticles. Hell already had an outline. Heaven certainly had an outline. Purgatory, he will give the outline too. And so, let's keep moving. Here's an image of purgatory. I want you to just take a quick look at it. You see that it's an island in the middle of the water. It reminds you a little bit of Ithaca. And it should remind you a little bit of Ithaca. Because, like in hell, we will have a ferryman. This ferryman, rather than a demon or a pagan, will be an angel. And it will be leading not damned souls, damned to all eternity in hell, but rather saved souls. Blessed to someday make it to heaven. They will make it to the shore in the beach, and on the beach, or rather in the first ten cantos before we get to the seven terraces of purgatory, we will find two areas, and uh, the second area will be split into three. The first area will be people who are excommunicated in canto three. The second area will be those who are late repentant. I'll talk about them in a moment. In any case, there's work to do before we even get started in the purgatorio. And that's really what I want you to focus on there. Also, notice what time of day it is here. And notice the fact that you can see that it's day here. Time will pass in the purgatorio. And we will actually arrive at the purgatorio exactly when you would expect. At the dawn. At the dawning of something. At the beginning of the day. Alright, let's talk about a couple of differences. And we're really going to be talking a lot about structure of the purgatory today to help structure your reading of it. All souls in the purgatory are saved, whereas all souls in hell are damned. What does that mean? Well, that means that all these souls have committed an act of repentance and therefore contrition. They have recognized the fact that they had sinned in some way, and they have, um, at the very least, well, uh, depending on which soul we see, and we will see several souls at the very beginning, uh, especially amongst the late repentant, who didn't exactly go through a full Catholic uh, contrition process, and we will list out the three steps of those um, which will be symbolically represented by the three steps of the first. Uh, the first guardian of a gate, angel, guarding the first terrace of purgatory, will be standing on. In any case, all souls in purgatory, though they still have quite a bit of work to do, uh, like Odysseus when he gets to Ithaca, he gets home, but then he has ten books to kill 108 suitors. Well, it's very similar with these purgatorial people. They are saved. But they now have to cleanse their souls of all their earthly remnants, all their sins. It's very similar to Virgil's Aeneid Book 6 in the Elysian Fields, where souls have a thousand years to purge themselves 
of their desires, emotions, passions, all things that connected them to the human world. And I'll, I'll explain in a moment why that's actually sort of a sad thing. Because I think you'll notice you're pretty connected to a lot of things that make you heaven. Or, excuse me, make you heaven. That's funny. That's a funny Freudian slip there. You're pretty connected to a lot of things in this world. Like, say, your body. Be kind of weird not to have that. Your friends. Pretty weird not to have that. Your emotions. Pretty weird not to have those, too. And we'll talk about just the sense of loss that these people in purgatory will have. But apparently, they gain something even greater. The idea being that they give up that which was bodily, that which led them towards sin, so that they can attain to something immortal or pure. Something uh, uh, that you must be purified in order to enjoy, and that is uh, the very notion of purgatory. Purgatory comes from, uh, as it, uh, farther back, the Greek word pyre, which is where we get the word fire from. It is a purification by fire process. In fact, the word pure and fire come from the same word, you're burning away the sin is the idea, which is also, very sadly, one of the ideas behind the Salem witch, uh, one of the Salem witch punishments. You could cleanse somebody by water, sort of a baptism, that was often drowning. You could also cleanse them by fire, burn away uh, the flesh. That was another way that people, uh, witches, would be condemned, just to get us in the true Halloween spirit. In any case, the souls in hell were damned. What does that mean? That means that they do not ever leave there. They, regardless of their suffering and punishment, will never get through. Whereas in the purgatorio, as much suffering as each soul will go through, they will get through. So excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, something else I should mention is this. Souls in the inferno must stay in their specific circles. Souls in the purgatorio go through all seven terraces, which means they go through every single punishment. In our language, we would say, we really put them through the ringer. And it's true. It's true. Okay, couple facts. Hell is nine circles, and it is uh, and Virgil and Dante descend going along a left turning path. It's always to the left because they're always turning, so the curve curves with them. Well, now we're going to be corkscrewing up, going to the right. They're literally going in the right direction. Things are looking up. We're going to be focusing on improvement now rather than descending into uh. Uh, well, oh, worse and worse and deadlier and deadlier since. Remember, the seven terraces of purgatory, it has seven terraces, are based on what are called, colloquially, the seven deadly sins. Remember that we actually got a slightly better definition. They're the seven deadly vices. You'll call that slide from our last lectures. But they will go in sort of reverse order from the Inferno because this is essentially an inversion of the Inferno. Whereas in the Inferno, we were focusing on how things could get worse and worse. Now we're going to be focusing how to make things better and better. And so this will be a very human canticle. And so we will see in reverse order from the Inferno, mostly reverse order, pride first, envy, anger, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. And if you don't know what some of those mean, you will soon. Here's some images. The proud will have rocks on their backs because they thought, because they stood on rocks and looked down on people when they were, when they were alive. Now they will be bent over in order to humble their perspective. To humble or humiliate yourself means to bring you closer to the ground. Uh, humus is a Latin word for dirt and earth. The envious, we will see on the second terrace, they are all joined together. And they will have iron wire closing their eyes shut. To be, to be envious means to be invidia without sight in Italian and Latin. We will then see the wrathful. The wrathful, the angry, 
The angry will have smoke billowing up from them, also blinding them. How that differs from the envious will be interesting to see. We will then see the slothful, as you would expect. They were slow to move, and so they will have to run about at all times. Um, they'll be very fast. They move quickly on the purgatorio. Then we will see the avaricious and prodigal. They stare at the ground all day. It's like they have a, a it's like heads up, seven up, except for they never have the fun part when you try and do the guessing at the end. You just keep your head down the entire time. Because the idea is they focus on things that didn't matter, worldly things during their lives. You see how that works? Just looking at the ground, that's the world. Funny, huh? In any case, the gluttons, they'll be starving. They'll be very much like Tantalus. There'll be a couple of trees with some liquid, with some food. As you can see, they're quite hungry. Um, they don't get to eat, really. And then the lustful will be on fire. On fire, indeed. My goodness. Uh, it's almost like you'd prefer to be in the Inferno if you were lustful than in the Purgatorio, but the big difference is you do get through your punishment in the Purgatorio. And I think part of the idea is that, as a human, you can get through anything if you set your mind to it. And um, Sadly, this does remind me a bit of terrible things that happened in the 20th century that some people did get through. I am, of course, thinking about World War II and the Holocaust, um, which... But it was different in many ways, but just pops into my head. Humans get through terrible things. In any case, at the top of the mountain of purgatory, we will find uh, a place that is from the past uh, in terms of biblical consciousness. We will find Eden, the first home of man that is called terrestrial paradise. And in that place, Dante will say goodbye to Virgil. Because Virgil, well, there's some things that Virgil just cannot know. In any case... Let's talk a little bit more. So, as I said, the top of purgatory is Eden, also called terrestrial paradise. That word terrestrial means earthly, earthly paradise. It's a Latin word for it. Uh, in fact, you might know about this. Any of you have like a, any of you have like snakes or lizards or something? What do you call, you don't call it an aquarium that they live in. What do you call it? A terrarium. Exactly. Terra. Earth. Latin word for earth. In any case, we will head towards Man's first home in Dante's consciousness. This is uh, the place from the Old Testament in the first two books of Genesis. It is called Eden. Well, just as the souls in hell are, as we recall, denied hope, one of the three theological virtues, and the good of the intellect, and are stuck forever in the same place, as I said earlier, the souls in purgatory, they have a sense of motion. They're all spiraling upwards. They're all directed upwards. They're oriented upwards. They all work through all seven levels of the purgatory. Um, they don't spend equal amounts of time in each uh, level. And uh, they don't actually all have a defined amount of time that's the same as each other. I suppose that means the same thing. Uh, what I mean to say there is this. If you are particularly avaricious or proud, you will spend more time in those circles fixing your deficiencies. And in fact, we'll soon find that there's a character uh, that Dante really looks up for, Statius, he spends, I, I, I believe it's 500 years one place, 400 in another. He spends something like 500 years amongst the prodigal uh, for being overly prodigal. But I mean, I just want you to think about that. The, uh, the punishment is to lie on the ground and stare at the ground. Can you imagine 500 years of that? Can you imagine five hours of that? It, ugh, I mean, part of the idea of purgatory is that the scale of the punishments is so epic that it's supposed to make you think, how could you ever get through that? And yet... The way you get through that is by means of an intellect. You set a goal, and then over time, very slowly, 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 you recognize your transformation until, bless you, until 
you get to where you are going. In any case, the souls in purgatory also have another difference between them and the souls in the inferno. Whereas in the inferno, there's no day, there's no night. It's just an eternal darkness. You do the same thing constantly, never changing. Not true in the purgatory. In purgatorio, there is day and there is night. During the day, you work off your sin. During the night, you stop working. And you sit around and you reflect. It's very similar to probably what most of you do at night. You say, oh, Mr. Schmidt, I sit around at night and I do my homework. I say, sure, you do your homework. You watch YouTube videos and TV, actually. And you say, uh, sometimes. And I say, well, when you're watching a YouTube video or TV, are you watching a story? And you say, yes. And I say, well, what is watching a story for a physical creature like you? You're like, oh, well, when I watch stories about people, I connect with those people. And I look at the decisions they make and I decide whether I would do that or not do that. And I say, does that mean that you reflect at night? And the idea is that it's hard to move at night. You can't see that much. You might make a mistake. You might go the wrong direction. So what you might do to use your time wisely during night is to rest and reflect on what you've done the day before. And that's what these souls do. That's precisely what they do. In any case, the souls must go through three steps of penance. This is an old medieval Catholic idea. Um, these are the steps of penance. And they're not very easy when you look at it. First is recognition. Recognition is hard enough. That's what fills people's um, minds or souls at this time with guilt. What is it that I've done? What have I done? Is that great question that, in, that uh, indicates recognition. What have I done? Then there's the act of contrition. Contrition is, is, that, is the feeling that follows recognition. The feeling, ideally, if your character is well-formed, of sadness, because the idea is if your character is good or noble or just or true, that when you do lowly things, that you feel bad for doing that, because that's just not you. That's outside of your character. And, well, that is part of the goal of education, to show you that. Um, because the idea is that you all measure up to the same noble standard. And then there is, of course, the third act, the third act that makes this not so easy, which is you can't just recognize you can't just feel bad for something. You also have to make up for it through penance. And what is penance? Well, for these souls, it is a profound punishment through seven levels of agonizing torture. Which means that it's not supposed to be easy. And that change, for humans, does not come easily. Um, and, well, being both a coach and a teacher, I would say that I do not disagree with uh, Dante on this point, nor do, with the medieval Catholics, if you want to change for the better, if you want to change your habits, you say you have some degenerate habit, you want to, I don't know, do a fitness competition, but you really like cake, well, putting away that cake will not be an easy thing to do. Logically, it might be easy. You say, just stop eating the cake. Your habits will work against you. To make that transformation, you must put in work, you must endure uh, uh, physical pain and sometimes even some mental pain. And something lasts about this. Once we get past this angel of the first Terrace, there is no looking back. Once you set on a path, you must go to the finish. This is reminiscent of two stories from two different traditions. You know the Orpheus story. Orpheus was married to Eurydice on the day of his wedding. His wife was bitten by a snake. She died. She goes to the underworld. He, being a son of a god and a goddess, actually, and yet still immortal, Apollo and a muse, goes down to the underworld, charms the queen of the damned, Persephone, and asks for his wife back, Eurydice. She grants it to him, but she gives one condition. 
If you look at her, if you turn back before you exit the underworld, she will return here forever. So he walks all the way up out of the underworld, and then he turns around. But she's still in the underworld. And she disappears forever. Allegorically, do any of you think you know what that means? It does mean something. Yes? I think something to do with trust. That's good. That's not bad. That's not bad. I like that very much. But I'll, I'll just give a very straightforward interpretation. After someone's dead, where do they exist for you? It's not a trick question. We say they exist in your heart. Where is that actually in you? In your mind. Which part of your mind? It's not a complicated part. It's the part that keeps the things that you know. Yes? Your memory. Can things that only exist in your memory come back out into the world? So the underworld in this story is memory. And also there's a story from the Old Testament of this guy named Lot. He and his wife were told by two angels after housing uh, two angels, supposedly, uh, and keeping them safe from some, the advances of some terrible men. Um, they were told that their city would be burned to the ground the next day. They are told to go escape. And they are told, do not look back afterwards. And the wife looked back and she turned into a pile of salt, supposedly. Which uh, I suppose has something to do with tears. But in any case, there is no looking back. Once you get to the purgatory, there's only one way to go. That way is up. All right, couple structural similarities. Some, a claim I made very early in the Inferno, which I'll only touch on during this course, especially because we only have eight lectures, is this. If you read each canto of the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso side by side, you will notice many similarities. In particular, the first two cantos seem to be introductory cantos. first ten cantos are also introductory cantos in, in that... You don't get to real purgatory, I will call it purgatory proper, the seven terraces of purgatory, until Canto 10. Well, that's very similar to the Inferno. Remember the Inferno, we got into or upper hell in Canto 3. That's also where, in Canto 3, where we will meet the first excommunicated person in the purgatorio. Well, Canto 10 of the Inferno is where we ran into fallen angels. We'll run into an actual angel here. And whereas the fallen angels denied us entry, this actual angel will graciously allow us to enter when we ask nicely, or when Dante asks uh, very politely. Which is, and a question that I have, which maybe a scholar has answered, but I haven't seen is, is the angel at the gate to purgatory proper the same angel who was the heavenly messenger who came down to open the door to the inferno? Do we have the same angel open both doors for us? That's a very interesting question. In any case, we'll also see a new guide in Cantos 21 and 22, just like we received the Malabranche as guides in Cantos 21 and 22. But unlike the Malabranche, this guide, Statius, will lead us, uh, will lead us the straight way rather than off the straight path. In any case, we will also see, and this is not a structural similarity, but just something that's both sad and necessary, we will see Virgil disappear in Canto 30, it's a, and it's actually pretty unexpected, even though you'll know it's coming, and I'll let you know that it's coming. Uh, Dante will be uh, seeing something miraculous. He'll be seeing a divine parade. He'll be seeing this really cool parade with like a griffin and some virtues, and you know, it's just about the most fabulous thing you can imagine. And then, you know, you're with your friend, you see something cool, maybe at a movie, what do you do? You look at him and you say, did you see that, right? 
He's going to look at Virgil and say, Do you see that? And then Virgil's going to be gone. He's going to be up. And he's going to start. <coughs> Excuse me. Then he's going to start to cry. And then he's going to see Beatrice, who he's been wanting to see the entire time. And then she's going to yell at him that he shouldn't cry yet because she's going to give him something to cry about. And so he's going to really expect to be happy to see her. And then she's going to essentially lay out all the sins that he's ever committed and make him confess to them and then repent, which is. Oh, oh, that's like thinking that you're about to hug uh, a very soft teddy bear and actually it's covered in knives. Um, <coughs> sharp knives. <coughs> Excuse my coffee. I apologize. All right, time. Time is an important part of the purgatorio, just as time is an important part of our lives. And you'll see that Virgil and this character Cato, who we'll meet and see in the first two cantos, will really care about using time correctly. Apparently, the wiser you are, and this is a claim that Virgil slash Dante makes, the more you care about how time is used, which makes sense, because it is essentially the structure of your mind that you'll plant on the structure of your day, which uh, uh, is based on how much you do value your time and what you need to get done. In any case, Dante's Purgatorio takes place over a four-day period. And each day is punctuated by morning time dreams. There will be a dream right in Canto 9 about Jove's eagle and Ganymede. Very, uh, uh, and very interesting image of the rapture, <coughs> of being caught up by something. We'll see a second dream at the end of the second day, or yes, which, um, and technically the beginning of the third, of a siren that looks at first beautiful and then ugly. Reminds me quite a bit of um, The Shining, a Stephen King novel and the movie Virgin of it. And then we will see uh, uh, the final dream in Celestial Paradise of the two wives of Jacob, Leah and Rachel. Something interesting is these dreams will take place right before the morning. <clears throat> the medievals believed the dreams before morning were true dreams. Something weird about that that I'll tell you that we know now, and then my Fitbit even tells us. You often do your REM sleep, your rapid eye movement sleep, right before morning. So that's why when you have to get up early, you're all the more groggy, because that's usually when you're dreaming. And when you're dreaming, you're sort of, uh, that's when your mind is processing memories from your day, which is something you have to do to stop going crazy. That's actually part of the reason people go crazy after days and days of not sleeping. They, like a computer with too many applications open, haven't processed anything in their conscious mind from those days, and they start to lose it. They get disoriented. And also, your body needs HGH, that's called deep sleep, that's an, and that's why your body starts to fall apart. But in any case, it's just weird that we now know through science that you do actually tend to dream right before you wake up in the morning. And these people thought that those dreams were special dreams, uh, true dreams in some way, maybe even prophetic. All right, and then five concepts that are essential to this work are the human concepts that it involves. Work. It's a place of work. Time. Rest, hope, and transformation. Apparently, some combination of those five concepts is what makes a good human life. So we're going to try and figure that out because we have the ingredients. We need to figure out the recipe. And, in fact, that is a very good metaphor because if you're baking something, put it in the oven in order to what it up. Heat it up. And that's how you get the transformation. And, well, they will be filling the heat. Here, in fact, everybody at the very end, every soul at the end has to go through one last purifying fire. Um, 
hmm, interesting. And, you know, we even still have expressions like that. Uh, uh, an expression of transformation of one event to another is that you have to strike while the iron is hot. That's how you make a change. You've got to warm up before you do something. In any case, <clears throat> the first place that we're going to go to in purgatory is called anti-purgatory. Not because it's against or contra-purgatory, that would be A-N-T-I, but because it is before purgatory proper. It is anti in the way that antecedent or antebellum is used. That means before the, the war, usually the uh, American Civil War. <clears throat> there are two parts to anti-purgatory. It is the shore and the mountainside leading to the terraces. You see this little winding path here. This is anti-purgatory. <clears throat> And the first of the two parts is the excommunicate. And you might say, Mr. Schmidt, I'm not Catholic. I don't know what excommunication is. Uh, it's very simple, or at least I'll give you a very simple explanation of it. Exile is a secular concept. Excommunication is a sacred concept. When you are exiled from a community, you are cast out from it. When, and that is generally a secular or political community, like what happened to Dante in Florence. He was exiled from there. Well, you can also get thrown out of your religion. Get thrown out of the fold or the flock, as it were. Well, in Catholicism, if, say, you go against the Pope, he wields the power to excommunicate you, to send you out from the fold, which has not only earthly connotations, because then you can no longer take the sacraments, but also um, after-earthly um, connotations. You cannot go to heaven if you are excommunicated, is the old idea. Dante seems to disagree with this idea. Even those who are excommunicated by earthly popes can still, through an act of repentance, end up in purgatory. Because the idea is, does anybody know the will of God for Dante? Answer is obviously what? No, because if the pope, the divine instrument on earth, can get something wrong, well then, he does not know all that uh, the divine knows. And that is... a. Uh, I think that's sort of a kind belief of Dante, because he could maintain a party line, but also we, all, we obviously know that he, he thinks that popes can make mistakes, and he very much dislikes the pope that was pope during the time that he, well, the time before he started writing this Pope Boniface VIII. Something that you need to know is this. Those who are excommunicated do not get off scot-free, though. They must wait on the shores of purgatory to ascend the mountain, which is a pretty painful experience, and it says three times the time excommunicated. It's 30 times the time excommunicated. So if you were excommunicated three years before you died, you have to wait 90 years before you get started. I just want you to think about, think about the time between things. When, say, like you finish a practice and your parents late and you have to wait 15 minutes. How long are those 15 minutes when you don't have anything to do? Think about the time before a dentist's appointment. And they've got those old, like, 2006 highlights for kids that you don't read anymore right in front of you. Is that a good time? Or are you, how do you feel in those times? Extremely what? Bored. It's almost like you'd rather be suffering something terrible than just being that bored. And that's what they have to deal with. And so, uh, they don't get off scot-free. We will meet a character named Manfred. And you might say, Manfred, why is that name, where is that name coming from for me? He's the same Manfred who was killed by Frater Alberigo after he said, bring the fruit. And we will see plenty of connections like those. All right, anti-purgatory. The second part of it, which is split into three. The late repentant. There are three sorts of late repentant. There's somebody who's apathetic, seems to the law. Well, I'll probably, 
uh, read you the full quote about him. He's slumped over. He looks lazy. He moves so slowly that you just tell that this is somebody who does not take time seriously. We'll then meet the unabsolved due to violent death. That means that they wanted to repent, but they died very quickly because they died in violence. Which, uh, when you meet Niccolo Machiavelli next year, you'll see that that's what he considers essentially the worst way to die. And actually, if you look very close here, you'll notice that there's a guy named Buonconte de Montefeltro, which will remind you of Canto 27 of the Inferno and Guido de Montefeltro. And you will remember that Guido had that drama between a black cherubim, a demon, and St. Francis, and black, the black cherubim won that round. Well, with his son, Buonconte, it will actually be the case that St. Francis, where the angel wins. And you will see a similar parallel drama. Uh, this girl, Piatal, uh, De Atal May, she shares a couple things in common with Francesca. One is, she's also in Canto V, just as Francesca is. Uh, and I'll finish this in one second. The second thing is, just like Francesca, she's killed by her husband.